It's our job to tell better stories. And always remember, it's the risk takers that are rewarded. People are sick and tired of being marketed to, and they're sick and tired of being sold. The single biggest story today in sales and marketing is how our customers are buying different Hey everyone, it's your host Edward Ford and welcome to the Growth Hub Podcast, the show about all things B2B SaaS marketing. This podcast is brought to you by Advanced B2B, the growth marketing agency that helps B2B SaaS businesses generate sustainable revenue growth through marketing. So if you're looking for an agency partner who will help you get measurable results from your marketing, then check out advancedb2b.com for more info. Now, joining us today on the show is Asia Orangio, CEO and founder at Demand Maven and board member at Moz. And today we're talking about a five-step framework to create a B2B SaaS go-to-market strategy. Now, go-to-market is a term a lot of marketers throw around, but what does it actually mean? Well, in this episode, Asia breaks it down and talks us through her five-step go-to-market strategy framework that covers goals, product market model channel fit, your customer, success gaps, and guiding principles. She also talks us through practical examples of when she's built go-to-market strategies in the past as well. So a lot to dig into here. Let's get into it with episode 64 of the Growth of Podcast with Asia Orangio, CEO and founder at Demand Maven. Welcome to another episode of the Growth of Podcast. And it's my pleasure to welcome Asia Orangio to the show, who is CEO and founder at Demand Maven. So Asia, thank you so much for joining us today here on the Growth of Podcast. So excited to be here. Thank you so much for having me. Yes, we are super excited to have you on the show. I've been waiting a long time to have you on the show. So great that you're finally here. And today we're talking about a topic that everybody seems to have a different understanding of, and that is the much fabled and discussed go-to-market strategy. So I think to kick things (laughs) off, let's start with the very basic question. What actually is a go-to-market strategy? Uh, The million dollar question. Okay, a go-to-market strategy at its very core, it is how you are going to win in a particular market. And the go-to-market strategy, it encompasses every single aspect of the business. So imagine how does the business as one whole unit move forward in a market that it wants to win. So this includes marketing, this includes sales, this includes customer success, product, engineering, the every, every single aspect of the business. Yeah, love it. So how you win. And I think as well, it goes to show it's not just about marketing, but really the whole company needs to get behind this, even though I think marketers talk a lot about go-to-market strategy and end up driving or building go-to-market strategy. So uh, super good to have that clear definition. And today we're going to break this down and you have a five-step framework for building out your B2B SaaS go-to-market strategy or any go-to-market strategy uh, for that point, but we're focusing more on B2B SaaS. So let's break it down and start with point number one which you have uh, defined as the goal. So how do you define a goal then for your go-to-market strategy? Yeah, this is kind of a two-parter. So the first is, if the definition of go-to-market strategy is how the entire business is going to win in a particular market, then in some ways we get to define what that win looks like, what that is going to be, and what would be a win to us. Is that a certain amount of revenue achieved? Is that a certain amount of market share, which is much harder uh, to to achieve, but that that is something that also motivates businesses, teams, founders, CEOs, etc. Um, so on the one hand, we do actually get to define what win means 
happens to us. Um, there are plenty of founders out there who are perfectly happy with not building a billion dollar SaaS company. <laughs> and then there are others who simply uh, must achieve something to that scale. And so this is kind of where we do get to define that win. Now, in terms of actually setting the goal itself, usually with the go-to-market strategy, the first thing we must ask ourselves is what, what does that win? look like and then how do we quantify that as much as we possibly can um, there are tons of frameworks that you can use to define goals some of some of which you're probably already familiar with like smart goals you might have heard of there's also OKRs which you might have heard of as well I actually prefer to use OKRs when it comes to what the overall go-to-market strategy is going to be the objective can be as simple as uh, increasing market share or growing the business in some kind of way, increasing awareness. But the key results are where you get to define exactly what that win looks like. So quantitatively speaking, as at least as quantitatively as you could possibly get, uh, what is that What is that revenue number? Or what is that number of customers that you'd like to achieve? Or maybe even users, it, it could really, it really depends on the, the, the founding team, if you have executives in the team or managers in the team as well. Um, as a collective, you guys get to decide that. Yeah, really good points. And just as a follow-up here, when it comes to goal setting, would you recommend or suggest one big goal for everybody? Because you spoke earlier about how the fact that this is really the whole company that's involved, or should there be separate goals for different teams or departments? <laughs> yeah, good question. I do think that this depends on the size of the business, but what I see is pretty common is there's an overall business mission. And, and that is maybe the overall go-to-market strategy goal. But then that goal then tears down into different departments or department heads. Um, so you might have an overarching go-to-market strategy goal, but then marketing has a particular goal that's directly correlated to that and that tears up to that. And then sales might have a particular goal. Um, product might have a particular goal that they're trying to hit as well that all corresponds and correlates to that ultimate thing. Yeah, super good points. Really good. So that was the first part on goal setting. And the second step is creating your product market model channel fit using the PNMC <laughs> model uh, from Brian Balfour, quite the mouthful there. So how do you yes. <laughs> develop your product market model channel fit? Can you break this model down for us and, and communicate what we as marketers need to do when it comes to using this framework to build our go-to-market strategy. Yeah. Okay. So this, this framework is not actually originally intended to be used it, to be used for go-to-market strategy. I actually, uh, I basically took that framework and then applied it directly to go-to-market because to me, it just made the most sense of, uh, it, it just, it, it was so clear in terms of how it painted the picture of what the business looks like on just a flat piece of paper, or in this case, a screen. So imagine you've got a square or maybe a four quadrant system. And in one quadrant, you've got product and the next quadrant market, the next quadrant model, and then the final quadrant channel. And the argument that Brian Balfour has always made is that it's not just about product market fit anymore. You also have to have the right model that is actually going to not only produce the revenue that you're looking for, but then actually uh, engage and inspire the people that you're trying to attract. And then channels matter. So it's not enough to just have a product for that was designed and built for a particular segment of the market. You have to also push it through channels and the right channels, not just any channel. So when it comes to the organization and the business as a whole, Typically what we start with and what most founders start with, especially if you're early stage, 
there's a really good chance that you have a product already. You've already built something. So what we do in the very first quadrant is we list out out all of the things about the product that we are hoping to build and then what we have already built. And then in the market product, this is the, the excuse me, the in the market quadrant, we then list out all of the different customer segments or parts of the market, even competitors that uh, either directly compete with this product or are going to be leveraged and uh, supported by the product. And most founders, I would say, do start in the product quadrant. However, there's a lot of research now to be made uh, and, and just far more anecdotes that if you actually start with the market first and then build a product, then you have a much better chance of building the right thing and then also just coming out of the gate with much stronger product market fit overall. But after that, we then move over into the model quadrant. And this is where we start listing out the things about our funnel and the overall uh, model experience that we plan on offering to the market with our product. So this is, are we launching with a free trial? Are we, are we doing um, a more sales-led approach where we offer demos instead? Are we doing um, a freemium first? Uh, how are our plans gonna be structured? Not all of these things you're gonna have answers for, at least in the early, early days, but any business can actually use this framework and start listing out things in each of these quadrants. And then finally, of course, you get to channels. So what are the channels that are going to be best, um, best used to acquire the market that you're looking for? So the way I like to start with this framework is if we already have a product and we already have some of these uh, uh, questions answered, then we can start to fill out the framework ourselves. If we don't have a product yet, or if we actually don't really know, this is an encouragement to start doing the research, the discovery, the development that you need in order to start um, arriving at conclusions about what makes the most sense from a market perspective, from a product perspective, from a team perspective. And then you can start to actually craft and fill in some of these quadrants over time. Uh, but most early stage businesses, I would say, they have a very lean framework at first. Like there's not a whole lot like in every single quadrant because they're just getting started. But then as they do more customer discovery, they do more research, they, they, they build more pipeline of users. That's when they start really doubling down on certain aspects of the business. And mature companies can also do this and they probably have uh, quite a lot to put in every single quadrant. But but, um, but yeah, that's kind of how we use the framework to lay the entire organization on, on, a, on a screen, if you will. And it's where we start thinking about, does anything in one particular quadrant conflict with another particular quadrant? And what decisions do we really need to make in order to um, have something in pretty much every single section? Yeah, this is super good. I really like this model. And I've read Brian Balfour's article, but haven't really thought about it from the perspective of go to market. So this is super interesting. And I think the point you made about starting with the market and not necessarily the product is really good as well. And you've heard, I've heard people use the term market product fit rather than product market fit. So that you're thinking actually market and customer first, and then thinking how your product can uh, satisfy the needs of that market. So I think really, really good points. And from there, you spoke about the customer and that is the all important third step. So let's mm -hmm. dig into a super important topic for all marketers. And that is how do you then actually research and define your target customer? Can you talk us through your process? 
Yeah. This I would say is, is the very big difference between a very experienced marketer and a SaaS founder who might not have ever done marketing before, but they're, but they're learning and they're, they're getting used to thinking like a marketer. So the, the biggest, uh, the biggest step. So we, we cross the chasm from understanding, generally speaking, what our market is. And whenever I ask founders, Hey, like what, what is your, what is your target market? Who's your target customer? Um, I'll, I'll get, I'll get general blanket market answers of, Oh, well, we're, we're targeting SaaS founders, um, or we're targeting entrepreneurs and small companies. And it's like, okay, well, that is a multi-billion dollar (laughs) industry. Um, if we want to, carve a little section of that, of that market or of that industry, then we need to get a little bit more specific. So this is where we kind of cross into this third step. In terms of the overall market, a customer segment is a much more clearly defined uh, little subsection of that overarching market. It's actually really intimidating, especially as a small company to go after a very large market. So the way that we uh, tackle that is we identify, okay, well, what are the core, let's say two to three customer segments that are going to get a ton of value out of the product that we've built and the model that we have through and what are the channels that we need to tap into in order to reach those people. So instead of just saying, oh, well, we're going to target SaaS founders, we'll get much more specific and we'll say, oh, okay, we're going to target early stage SaaS founders. Um, they are probably pre-seed or seed round if they are funded, but they could also be, uh, no, actually, I'm, I'm going I'm to keep that. And then a second segment might be, okay, early stage SaaS founder, but they might actually be indie funded. So maybe they're not, um, you know, like a full blown, like they're not going the VC route, but they're going maybe a slightly different route when it comes to funding. They are likely... They probably started out bootstrapped. We start telling and crafting the story of these customer segments. If you don't necessarily know what these customer segments are, the best way to start is to actually start by doing some, what we, what we would call customer discovery. Um, others use the term customer development. But in the early days, customer discovery is really that process of identifying what the core segments could be. And then the more people that you talk to, the more that you're able to kind of categorize them into whatever, I hate to say buckets, but whatever segments make the most sense. Uh, And then from there, you can start to really identify one particular segment that is going to make the most sense to go to market after in the early days. As you get much more mature and you start you start any amount of go-to-market activity, you're naturally going to acquire users, customers, et cetera, at least hopefully if you're doing everything right. <laughs> uh, sometimes this takes much longer than people expect. Um, but eventually you do start getting active users, active customers, et cetera. And from there, you can also start to identify, okay, well, who are we actually attracting and who's actually becoming a paying customer? And then from there, we can identify core segments or cohorts of customers in that way and and using our own existing customer base we can do customer research to learn even more about them and figure out well how how do we accelerate the growth of this particular part of the market and then as you get really mature you start to attract many different customer segments just um, some some very intentionally and some naturally and then you start going to market within the market at a certain sense of scale and then that's when you really expand. And so the, the, the process starts out really super duper focused and maybe a little bit actually unfocused in the early, early days. But once you really start going to market, it gets much more focused. And then as you grow, you expand over time. Yeah, super good points. And following from this third step on the customer and research, 
The fourth step that you've defined is defining your success gaps or capabilities as you also call them. So this is something I haven't really heard before. So it'd be great if you could tell us a little bit more about success gaps and capabilities and their role in the go-to-market process. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Success gaps is something that a lot of strategists, you might hear strategists say like myself, but they are essentially the, the chasm that you need to cross in order to achieve this ultimate goal. They are the blockers to success. They are the potential risks, the threats, the known unknowns, things that you know that you don't know. It could also be certain resources or skills or capabilities that you're lacking that would uh, help increase the chance of seeing success with the strategy that you're going to market with. So by the time that we get to this step, we've, we've, defined, our, we've defined our ultimate objective or our goal. We've also really taken a look at just the business on, on some flat surface. <laughs> and it's so important to just see it in, in one particular place where all the decisions that we're making about product market model channel, et cetera, um, they are very clear and they are with you know, relative uh, definition. I say relative because it does depend, of course, on the stage that you're in. After that, we've then decided, okay, well, where is this growth going to come from? It's going to come from some customer segment. So, and if we don't know what those are, then we need to explore that. So by the time that we get to success gaps, taking a look at our business, taking a look at the market and the customers that we want to acquire and, or, um, or retain or whatever that is, and then knowing where we want to go, we have to ask ourselves, what is ultimately blocking us? So what are the blockers to this, uh, this success that we have defined? So that's where success gaps come in. And in this stage, you are going to list every potential possible thing uh, whether, whether known or unknown, that is going to prevent you from reaching this goal. And it's really important to know that this step is not to make you feel bad or anyone else feel bad. So for example, if you know that you want to increase the traffic on the website, but we don't necessarily have content marketers or we're not great writers by ourselves, or maybe we don't have the time, the success gaps can list any and all of those. And it can also get deeper into that. Well, we haven't really um, invested in this before, so we don't really know what this is gonna be like. I mean, it could really run the gamut in terms of what your success gaps might be based off of you, your team, et cetera. But it's not to make you feel bad. It's more than anything to help you choose one, projects that are actually going to help you tackle those success gaps, and then two, it's going to help you plan to overcome them. Because if we know what's potentially blocking us, then, then we can add more information to our strategy that it just informs it and it makes it better. So that's why we do success gaps. And that's why we just kind of take a minute to, to ground ourselves in the current reality. And then also it gives us a chance to say, um, oh, we can actually oh, well, we can actually solve this by doing this instead. And that's when, we, that's when we move into the more creative process of defining the strategy. What I love about success gaps are that it inspires and it motivates us to get honest with ourselves. Uh, and what I also love about it is that it really starts the creative process of thinking of solutions to problems. And that's a really, really fun place to be in. Um, part of success gaps, uh, and this is, I think, the last thing I'll, I'll leave everyone with is it, more than anything, it, it is, again, it is meant to just help you get a little bit real. Um, but some, some people might actually have very few, like, true success gaps, and there's a lot of 
just known unknowns. Like we don't necessarily know these things, but we don't necessarily also know how to know. And so if you find yourself in that situation, then it just means that you need to do more research. If you have a very long list of success gaps, like we're talking like 20 plus success gaps, that's actually a really good place to be in. And it might not seem that way at first, but I promise it is. It's because you've probably really thought about this and that's actually a really good indicator. So if you've got a long list, awesome. If you don't have a super long list, it might just be because you're early in the process or there's just a lot of things that you don't quite yet know yet, but you need to do some research or to figure out some things that way you can answer uh, some of the, the, the bigger questions. Yeah, this is great. I think a really important but overlooked part of the process. So it was great to hear more about that. And then we move on to the fifth and final step of your process, and that is guiding principles. So can you talk us through what they are, how you identify them, and how you use them? Ah, uh, Yes. Okay. Guiding principles. So this is arguably what makes just a bunch of research and tasks that we've kind of done before. <laughs> and this is what actually turns it into a strategy. I find that the CEOs that really understand strategy, they are amazing at defining new guiding principles for themselves and for the entire team. Guiding principles are kind of like the mantras that you are going to live by moving forward. So if you know where your success gaps are and if you know where you're ultimately going and what's blocking you and who you're trying to target, then your new guiding principles are going to be just the new ways of thinking and working and being that are going to take you to the goal. Now, it's really important to know to note that guiding principles are not tasks. They are not, uh, this is not like the project plan that actually comes after this. <laughs> um, but they are, they are going to just, again, they are the new just internal mantras that you're going to use to, to motivate you. So for example, um, we might, I use the example of um, we weren't creating, like maybe we want to increase traffic, but our success gaps are, well, we don't really have the content skills or we don't have the, um, we don't have like an in-house writer. So we're going to have to learn how to do that. My new guiding principle might actually be to, to learn in public. Uh, learning in public, that's going to be a mantra that I say to myself for the next 98 days, 180 days, however long it takes for me to reach my goal of increasing traffic. And that's just one guiding principle that I've defined. But to me, that means as I learn things, I am going to tell the world about them. I'm going to write about them. I am going to educate people about what I'm learning. And that learning is going to um, teach someone else. So a great example is actually, you might have heard this before, but uh, Alex, I believe, Alex Turnbull, I believe from Groove, way back in the day, he wrote this series about how he was going to grow his business to 100K in MRR. And founders at the time were glued to his articles, even though he was not necessarily, um, you know, he wasn't like an expert content marketer or writer. At least I don't know that he might have been. Um, but he really approached it with, we need to create content. Our content isn't great. It sucks because of these reasons. And he actually detailed this entire process. So then he decided, you know what? I'm going to start learning in public moving forward. That was one of his new guiding mantras. I don't think that that was literally his new guiding mantra, but that was how he thought about it. So that's how kind of like a, a guiding principle ultimately works. And on average, I would say you probably have about two to three, maybe four max, but two to three keeps it really simple for yourself and for the team. So what are the new guiding mantras that you are going to embody, if you will, uh, that will inspire you to take action, motivate you, and then also remind you of ultimately where you're going. The definition part of this 
it is, I think, best done in in discussion either with other founders or with other members of the team. You can usually arrive at them. But I find as like as you're describing them and as you're describing again, like where you're going, what's blocking you, it, it's pretty easy to come up with just like a few, I don't know, like three to four word phrases that are going to 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 take you forward. One thing to note about guiding principles is that they are not again, tasks or things that you can just assign to one person. They are something that motivates every single department head, manager, director, contractor, whoever it is that you're working with in the business. And also they hopefully inspire and motivate them as well. So that's the key to defining guiding principles. And again, this is this is what I would say arguably truly makes it a strategy because now you have these new pillars to go stand on moving forward. And then your projects, your tasks, all of the things that you do after this are directly influenced by those guiding principles. Yeah, this is great advice. And also something I haven't really heard discussed before as part of a go-to-market strategy. So this was great. And I think overall, this is a very clear and effective framework. And we'll come on to a practical example in a moment. But one missing piece I want to ask about is, at what stage do you build out and develop your messaging and positioning? Yes, an excellent question. Uh, there's actually a video on my YouTube channel that really dives into this pretty deeply. But the short answer is any stage but the approach might be different. So if you are very early stage, you don't have a whole lot of customers, but you know that positioning and messaging is going to be critical to your success, which I mean, to be honest, it's critical to almost every business's success. But in the early days, you're going to do, and I hate to say it, but you're going to do some guessing in the beginning because there's just not enough customer research or maybe a customer base for you to really truly know. And I would caution against using users who are not paying for the product uh, money changes everything. When people start really paying for a product, that's when it gets real. So if you are not currently charging for the product yet, that's okay. Um, but just know that you will be, you'll probably be making some bets and some guesses in the early days with, of course, the, um, the, the plan to consolidate that or um, rectify it in the future. Now, if you are much more mature, if you are later stage, uh, maybe you're in that traction stage or what have you, that, that positioning and messaging is something that you've probably defined to some extent. And as you gain more market share, as you acquire more customer segments or new customer segments, you'll be refining and honing that positioning and messaging all the time. Maybe not as frequently as you are in the early, early days, but you are constantly evaluating positioning and messaging just to make sure that it still resonates with the people that you are acquiring, focusing on, et cetera. Yeah, super good advice. I can definitely relate to that. And uh, I think everybody wants to build a go-to-market strategy, it seems. But when or in which cases should you actually develop a go-to-market strategy? Yeah. Go-to-market is one of those really funky things where whether, whether realized or not, we're actually constantly making decisions about go-to-market, especially if you have a team, your head of marketing, your head of product, everyone is actually constantly making decisions about go-to-market. So from a CEO perspective, I find it's best to define the go-to-market strategy when you hit a certain point in the business where you're ready to start bringing others in, meaning you're about to start hiring other roles and 
you're about to start moving forward as a true business unit. In the early, early days, especially for bootstrapped founders, a lot of it is defined by themselves. So I think if you're, if you're in a space where you're probably not going to expand the team a ton, or maybe like you bring on a contractor or freelancer here and there, then, and you're, you're maybe a solo founder or maybe you have a co-founder, but, and you plan on staying that way for quite a while, then defining go-to-market strategy becomes a little bit more fluid. It really, uh, you get to a point to where you know you ultimately want to grow, but you're not entirely too sure, uh, you're not entirely too sure who you should ultimately be in the marketplace and then also how you're going to achieve that growth. I think if you're, if you're struggling with figuring out who you are in the market, knowing also that you're probably not going to expand the team a bunch, then that might actually be a real big indicator to start defining go-to-market strategy. And then there are some, I will say, there are some who, uh, uh, you know, other consultants and other SaaS founders who would recommend that you define it from day one of product. But I, I do find that Go-to-market strategy at least doesn't really start to come together until you have people using the product and until, of course, you also do that customer discovery. And that's where you can start molding some things, even if it's not 100% concrete quite yet. Um, But those are a few different scenarios and trigger points, if you will, of, okay, it might be time to think about what go-to-market looks like, especially if you have competitors and especially if you have competing alternatives that are not necessarily like directly um, like products, but if, if, you are, if you are competing with people not taking action or not doing something, that's also a really good sign to maybe be thinking about go-to-market. Yeah, and how about if you're an established company, but you're planning to launch, say, a brand new product? Yes, that is actually a scenario that I am in now. So I have a client that I'm working with. They actually have a very mature brand already. They've been around for 20 something years and they are launching not just one, but two new products. And go-to-market is something that we are tackling immediately. We're at the stage, and this actually might be helpful for anyone who's listening who's kind of in this place, but we're at the stage where the MVP is almost ready. And I say almost ready, we're crossing our fingers. That's actually true and that you know it's actually going to be ready in like a month because <laughs> um, sometimes sometimes that happens too where it's like oh it's only take a month and then it takes two years um so we're at that place though where we have pretty real clarity on product already so we're already we've already made some product bets we're already making some customer experience and just ux ui etc bets and we're in a market that is crowded so go-to market strategy nearly from day one has been mission critical. So really understanding and taking the time to figure out how are we going to go to market in this incredibly crowded space? And we of course have some things that are propelling us forward, which are good things. We've already got some established credibility in the market today, but then there's other things about it too. So it's been a long time since this team has launched a new product. So there are some known unknowns and then there are just some pure unknowns. Uh, that we just really don't know. And we're going to have to uh, tackle those as we learn. But yeah, I would say we're, we're, I would, uh, we're like 90% done with the MVP and we're already planning go-to-market. So that might actually be a good, um, a, a good indicator that it's time to start thinking about it. Yeah, for sure. It sounds super exciting. And let's continue with cases. So could you give an example of when you've built out a go-to-market strategy in B2B SaaS? Oh, yes. I would say, I mean, from a demand maven perspective, 
all, all clients, <laughs> all clients need help with go-to-market strategy in some way. What's interesting is that whenever I work with founders or SaaS teams, they, they come to, to me, to, to my business, and they, they think that they actually have a marketing problem. And that's partially true. But what they actually have is a go-to-market strategy problem as well. And so we end up we end up starting with marketing, but then from a strategic perspective, I almost always dial it back to, okay, well, what is the ultimate go-to-market strategy? The example that um, I'm more than happy to expand on is actually the one that I'm, it's one of the clients that I'm working with now. So they are in the, oh, they're kind of like in an interesting category. So they're in the overall productivity space, but they are more specifically in project collaboration uh, software, like that's kind of like a, a, a category, but not really, like it's not something that you can directly go and find necessarily like in Capterra or G2Crowd or anything like that. So it's something that we are refining. But in the productivity and especially in the project management space, there's just dozens, thousands, hundreds of platforms, softwares, tools, and they range in terms of like how they actually approach a problem. And with, with go-to-market strategy, and using that framework that we that we broke down and discussed earlier, there were decisions that we had to make about, okay, but where do we actually want to compete? Who do we really want to compete for? We can try to compete in this really big SMB space, or we can actually really focus our attention on professional service type businesses and get even more specific and look at uh, service-based organizations that need to track time. So now, now we're getting even more specific based off of what the product is. And, and this is actually, like I said, like a pretty common process. A lot of founders, product managers, et cetera, like they'll really start with the product first. But I, I have been working with this particular team on, on infusing some of the market knowledge as well. So we are currently planning on doing this customer discovery and using their existing customer base to, to learn about the applications for this, uh, this product that is ultimately coming to market. We're also making some decisions about the model. So based off of just the extremely competitive landscape and also based off of their own growth goals, we're deciding to really leverage a much more product-led approach. So you might have heard of product-led growth uh, by um, Wes Bush and and um, so I can't remember his other his other partners in that, but they really want to deploy that kind of approach and strategy when it comes to thinking about go to market and also of course product and that has a number of implications. So we're probably going to be looking at doing some kind of freemium in some kind of way. We're, when it comes to launching, we're taking a three pronged approach to it. We're going to start with a very limited beta release to existing customers in uh, other parts of the business. And then, then we're going to start going to market to total cold strangers. And um, that'll be much more of a closed beta. And then eventually we'll get to a place to where we'll be either open beta or we're just going to go straight to freemium. So there's, we know that there's going to be three phases to this, but we don't necessarily know how long it's going to take. That's kind of one of those known unknowns. We know, we don't know that it's going to, it might, you know, this might happen in a couple months. It also might happen in a, in a couple years. But we are going to implement processes to ensure that we overcome those known unknowns. That's one of our success gaps, for example. And then from there, really, it's just going to be about, okay, well, we can't necessarily rush the MVP process. And we also probably can't rush the limited beta release process. So in the meantime, what are some of the things that need to happen from a marketing perspective? So we know we're going to need a landing page, for example. We know that we're going to need to be 
extremely clear about what our competitive differentiator is. Not that we expect users to come from other existing tools that are like this particular product, but we know for a fact that they are going to compare us against at least 10 other things because this is a really competitive space. So we're preparing for that ahead of time. And, and that's, that's how we think we're ultimately going to win. One of the other big things that one of our uh, guiding principles, if you will, uh, using my own terminology, is we are, we are very much going to focus on problem and solution first. So let's not, let's not mince words when it comes to the problem. We need to really explain the problem in this really competitive market. And we also need to point back to how we're solving it and how we're approaching it. So we're taking slightly different approaches to what that messaging on the landing page is going to be. And we're also pretty adamant that it doesn't look like everything else from just like a design and layout perspective. We, we want to stand out in this space. So those are uh, at least the beginning stages of a go-to-market strategy. And we'll move forward with this. And then we'll refine it as we get to certain stages of the product being uh, released to certain audiences. And so that'll, that'll be when we really start refining it and then we'll take it from there. Awesome. Well, this was super good. And we could now move to our closing questions and our fast five challenge. So I will ask five questions and all you need to do is answer as quickly as possible. So Asia, are you ready? Yes. All right, let's do it. First question. What is the one book you would recommend others to read? It is a book called Strategy, <laughs> shocker, by the Harvard, the Harvard Business Review. It is an excellent book. It's a collection of essays. I highly recommend it. A lot of these concepts and more are actually in that book. Great. So definitely something to check out after listening to this. Uh, second question, SaaS company you love and why? Ooh, okay. Oh, gosh. I wasn't ready for this one. I would say Notion right now. I'm really digging Notion. I love their, the whimsy in all of their marketing and their product is absolutely fantastic. Yes. Big love for Notion. We had Camille Ricketts on the show a few episodes ago. So definitely go check that out as well after listening to this one. Uh, third question, favorite place to read about marketing online. Ooh. Okay. I, I would recommend forget the funnel. It's much more about watching about marketing because they host webinars. It is led by Gia Laudi and Claire Solenchop. Highly recommend their content. You might have heard of Forget the Funnel before, but I think that they're they're hands down my favorite resource. But it is it is much more. Um, I don't think that they do content quite yet, but they do have a community that I also highly recommend. Yes, great shout out. We're big fans of Forget the Funnel, and also Claire and Gia, two former guests of this podcast. So you're you're shouting out all the alumni here, which is great. Uh, <laughs> fourth question: <laughs> most important growth metric. Yes. Okay. I'm going to say churn. It honestly doesn't matter if you are acquiring new trials, acquiring new users, if churn is really unhealthy. It, it's a really inefficient funnel if churn is not amazing. Yes. And the fifth and final question, best piece of advice for fellow marketers? This is something that I'm, I'm it's a trend that I'm noticing, but I think figuring out how to both bring structure to the SaaS business while also creating a foundation to be creative, to explore, to experiment. That, that to me seems to be just, I hate to say like it's magical, but because uh, it sounds like it's unattainable, but I think that's really where the perfect balance between being structured and regimented and then also being really creative 
it seems to live there. So I would, I would recommend, especially if you're a marketer that kind of feels like you don't have a handle on everything, take a moment to bring structure to that, whether strategic structure, whether analytic, uh, like maybe there's some analytics that to pay off, whatever that structure is and what that means to you. I would, I would take some, take some time to bring that to the organization and to your department. And then, then you get to play. And I think that that's, that's a really fun place to be in. Yes, absolutely. Well, Asia, this was awesome. And I just wanted to thank you again so much for coming on the Growth of Podcast. This was awesome. Thank you again so much. That was Asia Orangio on how to build a go-to-market strategy. So thank you so much for listening to this episode. And if you're enjoying the show, we'd love for you to leave a review and rating on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. And as ever, you're always welcome to reach out to me on Twitter at Nordic Edward or connect on LinkedIn. So thank you so much for listening to the Growth of Podcast brought to you by growth marketing agency Advanced B2B. This is your host, Edward Ford, signing off and make sure you check out advancedb2b.com for more content and resources on everything B2B SaaS growth. It's our job to tell better stories. And always remember, it's the risk takers that are rewarded. People are sick and tired of being marketed to, and they're sick and tired of being sold. The single biggest story today in sales and marketing is how our customers are buying different things.